Welcome back, I suppose, to Perspectives YYC, the podcast. Uh, my name is David Yan. I think we're recording what likely will be episode three. A uh, shout out to my sponsor and my producer, Dr. Dre here, Kyle Marshall at Media Lab YYC. Without you, Kyle, I, I wouldn't be able to do any of this. So thank you so much for your support. Um, and uh, as per the anonymous tip on Instagram recently, we uh, need to sit down with each other in one form or another and just uh, let other people in on the conversations that typically precede this, except for today, because I was a little bit late. With me today is our inaugural female guest, an artist, um, Magda. Magda's uh, uh, Instagram is Modern Emulsions. Now, unlike my other two guests, Magda and I don't have a real relationship, really. So I think what I'll start to do uh, today, Magda, is uh, ask you maybe to introduce yourself, and then we could start there. Hey, David. Um, yeah, my name is Magda. I've been painting full-time for about two years now. All abstract, resin art, a little bit of freedom from the regular corporate life that I used to have for the past 10 years prior to that. Yeah, that's that's kind of a really quick intro. Okay. Uh, the reason why I know Magda um, is a couple of things. Number one, I dabbled, I flirted with markets in Calgary uh, as a photographer. It, it didn't go well for me, but I met you at, I think, Little Modern Market. Uh, I walked by your booth and uh, and I it literally stopped me in my tracks. Maybe you could give me an idea of what you were doing there <laughs> and how that's been uh, for you as an artist. Uh, yeah, so the first thing that I started when I started doing uh, art full-time was knowing that I needed to do or get exposure, the best exposure at that point, was markets. Uh, I ended up signing up for 10 markets in my first 12 months, which was amazing. Met a lot of incredible people and a lot of wonderful other creatives in the community, which was the best part of it. So at the beginning, it was just about hey guys, here's what I can create, but it ended up being a little bit more than that and being able to connect with a great uh, community of people. Speaking of community of people, Jill Paddock said hi. Ah, love Jill, <laughs> yeah. love Jill. I was super terrified of her when I first met her. Um, it's really difficult, I think, for an artist, brand new starting artist to go up to a great artist and to say, hello, uh, I'm new here. And she was so incredibly welcoming and so kind. She is definitely my absolute favorite. She's like the nicest person. Uh, not to spend this podcast, I'm trying to get her in the room too, but- uh, She's, she's fabulous, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so just to touch on a few points here. Um, number one, you mentioned your corporate past. Um, and I don't want to uh, maybe focus on it as a corporate job because because uh, uh, fuck those jobs. But um, maybe <laughs> I could ask you this, uh, you know, having been through a transition myself where I am now leading this so-called life of art and curating and collaboration, it sounds like you had a similar, uh, probably different experience. Um, maybe you could give me a brief idea of I mean, I overheard you speaking with Carrie at Guildhall a little bit, but um, maybe you can give us and the listeners an idea of uh, what you were doing in the corporate world, what maybe happened, and uh, how that brought you to art. Sure. So I'll start at the very beginning, super short and quick, though. Uh, I started in biochemistry in university, completed that degree, finished a finance degree, went right into oil and gas accounting, Spent my first eight years in accounting, uh, ended up getting a CPA designation as well, 
everything was fabulous. You start at the bottom, you work your way up, constantly climbing the ladder, constantly learning and growing. And uh, you get into this kind of automated sense of life and you keep on going. I transitioned into a new company in order to facilitate more growth. With that came more chaos and the more of the realization that the regular definition of this boxed success bullshit was not who I necessarily was anymore. Uh, and so I started gravitating away from all of it. And so everything in the corporate world just started having this distaste for me, particularly how we treat people. Uh, we don't value them enough. We don't value our community enough. We don't spend enough time. And, and so in a recession, when oil and gas is going down, the entire economy in Calgary goes down with it. Whereas if we supported local, bought local, did everything local, then our economy would be fine on a local level. So yeah, that kind of happened. And it was a year of chaos and busyness. And so I transitioned. Uh, I decided to leave the corporate world completely. I just quit. I have this thought to ask you whether you're being a woman um, throughout all the experiences, whether, I mean, you're an, a, a, an overachiever. I mean, biochem's frigging hard. Finance as a master's in, et cetera, is, is hard. See, my brother was a, a CMA, CPA, so like all of it's hard. Uh, yeah. But also climbing the corporate ladder, being in corporate environments, being in big money, big oil, and then this realization that there's this empathetic human social uh, reflection somewhere along the line. Do you think that there's a narrative there that has a sort of a gender bias, or is it mostly just cultural at this point? Um, I'm sure the gender bias exists. I'm a bold enough person that I don't think it impacted me. I'm not, um, I'm not meek. I, so I ask what I request. I go forward if I want something and I put in my all. So I don't feel like it has hindered me because I'm a woman. I'm sure it exists. There's, there's no way around it. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't want to get into a broader uh, debate between the yeah, two of us. But personally, it's and... not something that had an, a massive impact on me on a career level, no. You know, it's interesting. I, I get this sense from you, you know, that you're a, a no excuses kind of person. There just seems to be, whether it comes um, as part of your inherent personality or from how you're upbringing or from all your experiences as a young person, you, you, you even the way you speak, I think you want to be direct. You want people to understand you. Um, is that a, an accurate impression, first impression? Yeah. 100% accurate first impression. Um, no doubt about it. I was really shy when I was younger. I am an introvert. Something happened in my early 20s, I think, where I started dating my husband and my husband is a big extrovert and all of a sudden, and I was hiding behind him. Every single time he would introduce me to someone, I would hide behind him. And he, and I was 19 at the time, he looks at me and he's like, Megda, you are embarrassing me. Can you please just say hello? It won't kill you. And so I started saying hello. And all of a sudden, it transitioned to me being who I am, which is I don't like bullshit. I don't like uh, being two-faced. I don't like dishonesty. And so I am I maybe too, too honest, too straightforward. But at least everybody kind of knows where they stand with me. It works. It works. And it cuts out all this other junk and filler in between. It's that I don't have time for. It's fascinating to think of 
you as a can't even say hello in public person. Uh, yeah, it was and awkward. Now you're walking into a podcast. Still awkward. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to record yourself talking about your practice and about yourself as a person. It's incredible. I'm probably, yeah, I'm blushing. I'm probably super embarrassed at the point, uh, at this point, but that's okay. That's okay. So do you think, is there anything historically growing up, et cetera, that connects you to the arts? Uh, or is there maybe a, a narrative or a thought in your mind of how leaving the corporate thing became a creative process instead of perhaps starting a restaurant or, or selling stuff online or whatever it is? Um, you know, what, what do you think brought you to the idea that creativity had a, had a key to, to some of the issues that you were experiencing? Uh, so it did start when I was younger and I just didn't know it at the time. Um, I come from a very traditional home. My parents were immigrants. We emigrated here when I was really young. So everything was a big struggle. We didn't know the language and all that stuff. So anytime I brought up anything creative, my parents' answer to that was, that is a hobby. That is not a career. And so that's maybe where the overachieving also came in. Um, and so that kind of continued. At, when I was really young, I wanted to go into creative makeup artistry, kind of like sci, like some really crazy effects. Uh, they said makeup is a hobby. Uh, when I wanted to go into nutrition and kind of holistic nutrition when I was about 17 into university, they said that is not professional enough. Okay, so went into biochemistry, did the finance thing, went into corporate world, everything was like that. And I knew that I didn't fit in. There's always something off, but because it was so stifled for such a prolonged period of time and because I was an overachiever, I only focused on super core things. So I didn't have time to draw pictures here and there. So it was never released. Uh, I would draw little murals on my walls at work or things like that. If I was on the phone with a client, I would probably be doodling, but it was super stifled. So when I finally, for the very first time in my life, did not have a job, did not have any responsibilities, and I had a ton of time on my hands, it poured out. And it kind of hasn't stopped since. Literally and figuratively, I think. Oh, oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> so weird. If you, if you don't, haven't checked her out yet, uh, Magda's art, uh, which is beautiful, is using, and, and I'm probably going to butcher this so you can explain to me after, but pouring layers of um, color and, yeah. uh, and textures into epoxy resins and creating these incredible shapes. Uh, and so uh, before we jump into your actual craft, I was just thinking, you know, you talked about the the box success. You talked about fitting in and not fit. There's a TED Talk. I, I do this a lot. I, I can't actually remember what it was, but this uh, smarter human being than me was on stage talking about the identification of human beings as parts of a machine that uh, mm -hmm. goes back to, I think it's G.S. Mill or one of the big industrial philosophers, and that the only way to value other human beings is to uh, equate them either in mathematic principles or like as, you know, uh, figuratively as you have this one role, you just, you know, what's the fastest way we can turn uh, a line of human beings into an industrial mach machine to make uh, shoes? Well, you can't have them each make shoes. You have to get this one guy to just hammer the nail down. Yeah. And the next guy. Oh. And so it's interesting because I abhor that idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and it sounds like you're very sensitive to the concept too. I mean, you use a lot of these metaphors. So I think this will be a great lead-in in general to the way your art works. But um, what are your thoughts about, um, about that thought? I agree wholeheartedly. 
Um, and I started realizing that in the corporate world, actually. And the reason why is because as a person who is an overachiever, I started moving around between departments. And as you move around between departments, you start realizing that the person that I was annoyed with in my last department had to rely on information from a different department, which is annoyed because this other person. And so when you are completely isolated in your bubble, doing your own thing, you think the whole world is the issue except for you. You don't understand the other moving parts around with it. And so as I started moving around, it's like, oh, that person was late because they're also reliant on this outside source or the bank who hasn't gone back to us regarding the finance, which it can only be transferred then to accounting to do process. Like that is just how it works. And unless you fluidly move between all of those, you just, you cannot have the full understanding. Um, and just recently I started figuring that out as well, because uh, for the very first time I had my niece helping me out with a little bit of my prep work, which is amazing. Highly recommend a plus one for any solopreneurs to get a little bit of help here and there. But because she only knows a very limited part of my process, there's certain things that she didn't take into consideration. And I didn't think of to tell them because I take it for granted. And so I tell her a very limited amount of information. Based on that limited amount of information, she gets it done. And then later on, I realize, oh, shoot, I didn't tell her this. She did this wrong, whatever it may be. Um, but that's because she doesn't know the whole entire process. It's interesting that you characterize that way. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure it's with Zaire, but I have this uh, yeah, phrase that we uh, spend so much time pointing out instead of looking in and uh, we're always Fact. trying to blame stuff. Oh, um, yes. But it's great hearing that, uh, you know, your niece made a mistake and you can actually have the wherewithal and the wisdom to be like, oh, wait, this is the part I played in that mistake. Fact. Oh, 100%. Tell her to get out, hit the curb. Oh, uh, no, no. Uh, best helper in the world. Um, yeah. Limited information. You can't expect the world to understand something that they don't know. Yeah, you know, maybe we'll come back to some of these little nuances. You know, your quitting story is fantastic. Uh, not that I know it that well, but the idea that you would walk away from that. Um, but maybe what we can do is kind of go into this creative process that you're talking about with your niece. I mean, I actually don't obviously know how to make your paintings. Um, you've s since issued me a couple of images to use on a poster, and we'll talk about it at the end. Uh, we're working together to get Magda a solo show in Inglewood. Um, it's going to happen. We'll announce it. Uh, so looking at your work, I mean, the flow, the use of color, uh, metallic insets, um, you know, different background, um, you know, all of it. Uh, how much of that essentially, quote, you know, pours itself? How much of it is intent? What? How do you make these incredible uh, pieces? Uh, so my process varies depending on the day, on my mood, and the size of the paintings. Uh, when it's a very large painting, there's a lot more forethought that goes into them. Mainly, I started off with having coffee in the morning outside in the sunshine with a pen and just doodling. Uh, you doodle flow. Uh, because all of my work is abstract, I'm not trying to create a specific landscape or anything like that. It's just a basic flow and it has to have uh, what I don't, so I've never taken an art class, so I don't know these things, but I did go to an art gallery where my work was critiqued and she said specific words, kind of like it has to have a focal point. There has to be X amount of vertical and horizontal lines and there's this and there's that. And so it was only after she said those things that I realized, oh, so when I doodle, that's what I'm trying to actually achieve is 
there's a mathematical reasoning why something is visually appealing versus something that isn't. Uh, so I do like to doodle uh, things ahead of time. And so when I pour, I pour and then I force the paint to kind of flow into different directions based on what my idea was. There are times where I start pouring, things start looking differently, and I go with it because there's something new that's happening that I love and something that I didn't have, couldn't possibly have had the forethought to think of. And there's other times where it stays exactly as I have envisioned it. On smaller pieces, way more intuitive. I either choose a color palette or, and I just kind of go with it. And whatever happens, happens. Uh, the reason why I'm pretty calm about the process is because most of my pieces have between three to six layers. So if I don't like a particular layer, but I like certain elements, then I pour over those elements that I didn't like and the pieces that I loved, I clear coat those. Uh, so there's always this buildup of depth and interesting things that happen. Yeah. I wonder, you know, the thing I just jotted down in my book amongst all these other ones is, um, sorry, I don't know if I turned away from the mic, but amongst all these other ones is uh, the contrasting between there being six to three to six layers, um, this idea of being open to the way the paint moves, this sort of flexibility, even from a doodle sketch to the physical act of uh, setting your frame and, and putting the first layers, all of it. There's an underpinning, um, yeah, like wisdom, flexibility, uh, openness. That's fascinating from someone that would, in a corporate world, have been seen maybe as very controlled, very, very push, you know, like forward pushing, very, you know, um, where do you think that comes from. I mean, even maybe the story of why there are three to six instead of one or 15. Like where where did yeah. all of these uh, things come from? Um, so yes, it's definitely so different from my corporate life. I mean, it's still, entrepreneurship is still incredibly, I think, plans and a little bit of control. And so all of that kind of admin stuff, marketing stuff, all that kind of forethought kind of goes into that. So when it comes down to my creative time, it's my time to escape. It's my time to release. It's a time for the magic to kind of move through me and that energy gets transferred onto my canvas. It's not something I find that the most amazing things sometimes happen when you just let them be and you let them occur and uh, you don't pretend to have control over something that you don't have control over. Why three to six layers? So I did start with one layer. Uh, the reality is that after one layer, the chances of a painting being perfect are slim. And so I started doing two layers to do touch-ups. And then all of a sudden, I did layer three, and it's like, holy cow, look at this depth. And so all of a sudden, four layers happen. I mean, they're, realistically, if something looks amazing after two layers, that's it. It's done. I put down the paintbrush. We're good. If something is giving me troubles or doesn't feel complete or I don't feel extremely happy with it, then I keep pouring. Sometimes it is intentional. There's certain things that require X amount of layers. So if I'm doing a kind of fluidy ocean piece, it needs the depth. So I know for a fact at the beginning, I just pour to get the first few layers down because I, and it's going to be ugly and it's not my intention to be perfect because I know that the, it'll all kind of come together in layer three, four or five. You know, it's interesting. And I wonder if this is why I connect, uh, especially, I, I, I vividly remember walking by your booth uh, and this is not just uh, uh, face, you know, it's trying to say face or anything because you're here. I, 
I actually uh, manipulate images um, and I build uh, photographs. I mean, I take photographs too as a so-called more standard style uh, photographer. But I actually hear the same thing with you. I, I'm not classically trained. Uh, you know, I, I don't actually know uh, what I'm doing most of the time in any aspect of my life, actually. But um, Me too. <laughs> and one of the things that I started doing... Um, I don't remember why. Uh, I just had this, I used to be a big movie buff and I think I had this fascination of, you know, photograph is meant to capture a moment to tell some narrative, whether it's intentional, whether it's political, whether it's implied, whether it's, you know, uh, visual, like that uh, critique was telling you about uh, two thirds, golden rules, spirals and all that kind of shit. Uh, I don't know. Because I think of my movies and not wanting to become a videographer, I started hashing two, I started with two images <laughs> together. Uh, you know, I think maybe one of the first ones was I, I was walking by this nice lady across the street and I had one image where she happened to be on the left side of the frame uh, at the beginning of the crosswork. And as I passed her, she was on the right side of the frame. So I, I smashed them together. I taught myself how to use Photoshop. Fabulous. And now it's come to the point and I hear the same thing where I don't really know why I still do it. I don't know why when I finish some of these images, I like them so much. But all I do is I scrape away stuff to create... Some kind of story. I don't even know really what it is. And I'm sure by the time I post it on Instagram or show somebody, it's changed from the day that I conceived it. But there's something about, like you talk about depth, uh, movement. Um, there's a spiritual aspect in the way you talk about your work. Um, I, I, I circled the word amazing because I wanted to ask you, what is it that makes you think that a picture's ready and it's done? What, what is it that's amazing about it to you? Is that something you can even rationalize in words or is it something that's intuitive? Definitely intuitive. I either like something or I don't. Um, the thing about abstract art is that technically it can be hung in all four ways. So if we're saying that a piece of art has four, four edges, then it could be hung in any of those directions. So I usually put something on my mantle and then look at it one way, have a coffee, have a sip, rotate it around, see how it makes me feel see if it resonates with something, flip it over again, see if something fits, something resonates. If I don't feel anything, then I keep working on it. If for some reason I rotate it one way and it's like, ah, that's what that is. That's what I'm feeling. Then that's good. Hmm. That's good. Uh, I'm happy with that. I like that. I, you know, it's interesting too. I wanted to ask you, um, maybe we'll just ask you. I mean, you know, with your corporate accounting, financial advice, you also have this very structured approach to your business. And I've met so many artists that struggle with that. Um, but then hearing about your proofing uh, process, there's a structure to that. I mean, even if it's the loose concept that I want to be flexible enough that, you know, let the picture tell me which way it needs to be. And then once it hits that spot, I have an intuitive, but even the fact that you've got um, a process where you put it up somewhere and and leave it for a while and come back to it, et cetera. I mentioned in one of the podcasts with a photographer, a very, very famous uh, photographer, George Weber, told me he leaves um, undeveloped film in a box for two years before he looks at them, three years, something like that. And, uh, you know, there's a an intentionality, there's a structure, there's a rationality, there's something in, uh, that in your approach. Uh, so the, I guess the two questions are, A, are you aware of that? And B, are there sort of almost advice or ideas that you've learned in building your business that maybe other artists need to take a little bit more seriously, um, especially in Calgary, where I think there's a struggle getting that conversation that these things are. Right. Um, I truly believe that I'm incredibly fortunate to have a business background. 
a fully 100% business background that I don't have a creative background. And the reason why is because, to be honest, I paint 20% of my time. The 80 other percent is all business. Uh, realistically, if I am a creative in my, I, I work out of my home studio in my basement. So if I'm in my basement and I'm painting, painting all day, the chances of a person randomly from the street coming down to my basement and saying, I love your art and I want to buy it all, the chances of that is zero. And yes, this is a passion and I enjoy what I do, but realistically, I would like for it to also be a career. And in order for that to manifest, you have to put in the time not just to create, but to make a business out of it. Um, so that does include, well, let's start with a business, business plan. What are your vision? What are your goals? What are your ambitions? What are you trying? What is your art supposed to be? What are you trying to say with it? Um, because that creates who you are, creates your demographic. Do these people who you're selling to, do they also care about community? Do they also care about shopping locally? Do they care about what do they care about? Because their values have to align with your values. So once that is established, then exposure for sure is social media is one, um, markets are another. I don't know if you want to go into wholesale, retail, galleries, all of those conversations need to happen. Uh, networking events, all of those beautiful things. I didn't know photography. I didn't know anything about Instagram. I still maybe don't. Nobody does. No. It oh my day. goodness. A goddamn uh, uh, but it was, it's, so it's a huge learning curve. And because I do have a business background, I stayed focused. I stayed on task and I knew that I needed a website, I needed this, I needed that. And so I just did it. Do you think, uh, so maybe now we can track back, like we're, you're, you're going to, you've just made the decision, um, and I don't know if you want to spend any more time on that, but the specific moment that you made a decision that you're going to walk away from what many would pres presumably consider corporate success, um, that uh, if I remember correctly from our previous conversation uh, at Guildhall, that you decided, uh, and, and again, it, it fits in with your um, intentionality, that you would take a year, that you would do X, Y, and Z to try this thing out. Uh, where do you think, maybe we could talk about then see where, for example, the creative thing started, um, where this business plan portion started. Can you give us a little bit of insight into the actual way that you came across these uh, pieces of advice? So there's two instances. One that happened, so I've only been painting for full-time for two years. My first instances was about six years ago. It was a stampede. I was walking with my husband down 17th Ave. A tourist comes up to me and says, hey, I was wondering if there are any hidden gems, any great little local restaurants that I should try out. I didn't have an answer for her. And I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I didn't know my own city. It was one of those things where you work nine to five, you come home on the weekend, you go to the quickest place, which is probably an Earl's or a Joey's. No, love them. Love them. Um, uh, you go to a Starbucks for coffee with your friends and you come home and that's it. That is your life. In, day in and day out. There's no effort. There's no thinking. There's nothing else involved. But I was embarrassed that I didn't know a single restaurant in the vicinity that was local and fabulous. Sounds like you were a cog in a machine. Oh <laughs> my goodness. I was, it was, that was, I, to this day, I want to thank this woman who I will never meet again. And she had such a profound impact on me. Uh, I went home so annoyed with myself that I ended up going on a huge rant with all my friends and said, this is enough. <laughs> 
there are so many amazing local places. Why aren't we, we meet each other every single week? Why are we not trying out all these wonderful local places? A coffee is going to be $5 whether you go here or whether you go there. You might as well support local. And their reply was, Megda, we don't care where we go. If you care, why don't you make a list and we'll just do it? So I did. I made a list. I made a list of all the restaurants, made a list of all the co local coffee shops, and every single week we went somewhere different. Sounds fun. Do you have a favorite? Freaking fabulous. Uh, I mean, it was a few years ago. Jeez but. Louise, it kind of evolves. Uh, a really regular place for coffee. I still love Purple Perk. Great coffee. Places to eat. It probably varies every single month. Um, I wear down on 17th all the time, so Angie was great. Uh, Model Milk, Cleaver, Una. I mean, my goodness, you just kind of go down the entire strip at this point. I mean, this was also six years ago, so the food funny. scene was just the big beginning stages. Now every other place is super local, super fabulous, so you can't possibly walk down a street in downtown Calgary and not find an awesome place. It's a little bit different, but that was my initial place. That started everything because from that then uh, markets started happening, just attending local markets and realizing there's a lot of great local people around. Yeah, uh, people. So that yeah. was the element that pulled me out of this box. You know, what's interesting is uh, my wife and I, I shout out again to my wife, Helen. Uh, I mean, I, not just I love her, she's the best, uh, but we came from Toronto six years ago. And so we kind of also entered Calgary at the beginning of that uh, new nuance. Uh, so our perception of Calgary is that it's got these cool little hip spots. You know, our favorite restaurant is Ox. Uh, well, no longer and Angela, but Ox. You know, Phil and Sebastian's, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a perk person. Sorry, perk. I'm uh, Phil and Sebastian's uh, uh, obsessive um, yeah, slave. Uh, so uh, all, my, all my coffee goes through them. But, you know, even, even that. I mean, when we were in Toronto... I, I, we were a little bit big box. We were trying already at that point to try to do a little bit of different. But, you know, in Toronto, the grind uh, is such that I wasn't successful in a corporate and I still felt like I needed to yeah, do these things. You just participate in whatever the scheduled event is yeah. and then you just move on with your life. So we got to restart here. And it's, it's fascinating to hear that that's around the same time because I think my mm, calling, if you call it that right now, is um, I really want to focus on that. I, I want people to get out and do what you did, which is, uh, yeah, like, shit, let's make it specific. Make a list. Google local purveyors of stuff. Our favorite breakfast place is Blue Star. Blue Star Diner Blue Star is my favorite. dope. Like that yeah, place is fabulous. incredible. Um, and they're like, uh, you know, it used to, six years ago, it was a lineup. Uh, Monday, we were from Toronto. The idea you could get a lineup for a brunch place on a Tuesday morning was insane. Right. Um, and so we thought Calgary's this hip young place. But as you're uh, explaining, it's not actually the case. There's people that, we're into it and we're supporting, but as a whole, the culture doesn't seem to be there. It wasn't at the time. Uh, hopefully things cha have changed since then. Uh, I don't know. I don't go to a Starbucks, so I won't, couldn't tell you what it's like in there. <laughs> not, to, not to hate on, yeah, no, Earl's, no, Joey, Starbucks. Uh, it's just, no, it's going no. back to whole local thing. If people support me, then why wouldn't I support them? Yeah. Collaboration, society. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The community as a whole doesn't work if I'm requesting local support and yet going to big, big, big box. You know, it's the other thing that I picked up from the beginning part of your story. I'm sorry to cut in, but and not to hate on your friends or anything like that. But this, I'm getting, you know, even with artists, I uh, I put out these open calls for the magazine. I put out uh, some content, and so some folks like Kyle uh, approach me, and he wants to do something. We do something, and now we're here. 
But I've met so many people that approach, even approach me kind of sideways and then ask me what, like ask me to tell them what they should be doing. And I'm like, I don't, that's not how this works. Like I, I'm not here to be anybody's boss, uh, presumably. I'm not here to tell you that there's a right or wrong way to live your life. I just think that what you're experiencing, Magda, and, and it's kind of like, not to be a Nike supporter, but this just do it attitude that uh, I think there's a Confucius saying that I post on Instagram. Uh, uh, I listen, I forget, I see, I remember, I do, and I uh, and I learn or something like that. Mm. I can't remember how yeah. it goes, but ultimately that that you need to go out and act. You need to go and you know you need to go and make a list and drag your friends out and yes. and start those conversations. Yes, uh, I'm a big believer in doing. Uh, so that was my kind of. Going back to your first original question of how did this start? So that was the six years ago. And then right at two years, why art? Uh, the reason why it started was because I did have that conversation. I At first, I asked my husband, I'm like, would it be okay? I'm, I'm really enjoying painting at this point in time. Can I kind of see where it goes? And so, sir, his, how did we get into painting before that? Uh, um, so I just had, I was looking for jobs, regular accounting, boring this jobs. This after you'd already left then? I had, I had left. I gave myself three months to enjoy life, which I did. And then I started looking for jobs and they all reminded me of the same thing. Same corporate office, same international company, same job, same, not my nine to five. Was there any specific point that caused you to quit or was it just accumulation of- It was change? just an accumulation. It was downturn. I was supposed to lay off a couple of people in my team and I just said I couldn't do it. And so I, I laid myself off. Well, I, I quit. Well, that's a fascinating thing to kind of skim over. I mean, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, A, from the stereotype of a cor corporate personality, uh, there, you know, I think empathy is definitely a weakness. Uh, and B, this idea that uh, there's something that drove you on a human level that you didn't want to make a decision that was going to, be, let's say, maybe benefit the machine and harm a person. I don't know. Is there a narrative there? Or was it just? I don't, I don't want to be mean about corporate, my corporate life. Or, but it was an accumulation, and the relationships that I built with the people there were wonderful. And I wasn't, I was just tired of doing what I was doing, and at the same time, um, not treating the people that I really cared about well was enough for me to say I've, I'm done. Um, so that was kind of what happened there. Uh, so I started looking for other jobs and they all reminded me of my previous job. And so I came home really frustrated, not wanting to, I was hoping that I wasn't going to get a yes from any of the places that I applied for. And I had a ton of time on my hands and being a really busy person in regular life, I noticed that I had empty wall spaces in my house because that's one thing that you don't think of when you're in corporate is this beautiful creative work in your own space. I had naked walls in my house for eight years. That's how long my husband and I lived there for at the time. And I said, I finally have time. I'm going to put something up on there. How hard can it be to paint something abstract? And I'm, I'm always drawn to abstract. I'm going to just interject. Yeah, this please. morning at the coffee shop, I met a nice old man. Uh, he's a regular there, Eric. And um, it turns out uh, his wife is, used to be an artist and uh, apparently even headed the Alberta Arts Association, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, one of the things he asked me, um, which is a fascinating thing, and he characterized it. He's, he said he's been here since 66 or something and how uh, he, 
I think the way he phrased it was, you would think that with so much corporate growth and development, huge commercial buildings, these suburbs, that art would be an important part of the economy. But in Calgary, it's not. And he says there was a a boom apparently in the 70s or 80s. I can't remember which decade he talked about. But ultimately, um, that just didn't happen. Then he kind of turned to me as because he found I was curating the walls there and all these things that I'm doing. He goes, uh, like, what's on these people's walls? And I actually said... (laughs) My experience, because I used to work as a as a property just for an insurance company, so I've been in many people's homes. Like it's blank. It's it's blank. crazy to think about. And then my wife interjected. We were just talking about this at lunch, and she said, "You know what they hang on walls now? They hang TVs." Yeah. And <laughs> I think like um, there's something interesting that you bring up here. Uh, you know, you get this yeah. moment to yourself, and you look at your house, and you realize your house has no personality. Yep. It's not you. Correct. And then you start to paint. It's incredible. Yes. Yeah. Which is so bizarre that that is something that just occurred super, well, let's say super randomly off chance. Uh, One painting kind of happened and uh, ever since then I couldn't put it down. Was it poured acrylic already? No. Uh, So it was kind of, so I painted with a paintbrush uh, this silhouette of a woman and then it was abstract all around her. And the abstract around her was resin and acrylic. That sounds uh, like an auction bid item of the future, Magda. <laughs> uh, that is a present for my husband. He says that it's to this day his favorite painting oh, and he's never to going to get rid of it, which is totally fine with me. Um, and so, yeah, so it started with just randomly painting and I noticed how happy I was when it happened. So by that time, six months of unemployment I opened up Modern Emulsions on Instagram because I wanted to separate my art from my life. Uh, I didn't want to bombard my friends with my work, with my artwork, but at the same time, I wanted to create a space for myself where I can post and share my art and um, just enjoy the process. So I did. Um, So I painted for two months and September hit and I realized I want to try to do this full time. I am incredibly happy. I want to give it a try. So I asked my husband um, and he said, yeah, sounds good. He's a very, very easy man. And so I called the second person who is the most important in my life, which is my dad. And I said, hey, dad, just figured I'm going to start painting for a living. I'm sure that went well. He he shit on me. Uh, <laughs> he said, you're willing to give up all your education, all your success in order to paint. Why don't you paint on the side as a hobby? And for the first time in my life, I had the nerve to tell my dad what I really thought. Mm. And I said, hey, daddy, do you love what you do? And he said, no, it's a job. It pays the bills. And so I asked him, you love me. Is this something that you wish for me? To have a job that I hate, that makes me miserable for the rest of my life. And he didn't have an answer for that. And he went really quiet. And so I said, give me a year. If I fall flat on my face, I'm more than happy to take a corporate job. But I need a year. I listened to you when I was 17, when I couldn't get into this or you didn't want me to get into that, I'm not going to listen to you when I'm 30. Hmm. Best conversation ever. That was like a mood killer for sure. We, uh, we didn't ch- chat for the next kind of two weeks. And then he started coming around, started buying me 
better lighting, better art tables, better art supplies. Uh Um, My dad doesn't say, hey, I love you. I'm super proud of you. He just kind of does stuff. It's the baby boomer generation. Does stuff. Yeah. And so to this day, he's, he's, we talk about art all the time and he's incredibly creative and he has never done a creative thing in his life. I love that. I, uh, yeah, I, I mentioned last week with, uh, last week with Zaire, um, yeah, I, I've had my own amends to make with my family. And um, I think, you know, I suspect that while there are so many similarities in general with how people experience um, yeah, being parented, uh, and the conflict of different social goals and different generations, um, you know, my parents also as baby boomers uh, were focused on stability, focused on predictability. I mean, they, you know, to think about what it might be like, uh, my dad was born in 46, survived the Korean War, my mom, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm not sure where your parents are from, but, you know, the tumultuous areas uh, anywhere, Eastern Europe, all of it. I should, even in like the winning nations in Germany and all that stuff post-World War II, the rebuilding that had to happen um, for all the generations that had to experience that either as parents or children or, or, or the subsequent uh, generations that way, I mean, there's going to be a different focus on on what's important. Um, 100%. So to hear that someone that really needed to believe in stability asks, be asked by his daughter, um, not just for compassion, but for understanding as a person and actually only take two weeks to come around, that's a, that's a miracle. <laughs> Well, two weeks to kind of start talking to me again and realizing that, okay, maybe, I mean, my dad and I are really close. So for us not to talk for two weeks is kind of crazy. Mm. Uh, But we didn't bring it up for a while, but he started kind of just buying something here or there that I need. It's like, oh, your lighting's not that great. Maybe, maybe I'll just bring something next time. And it's kind of like a, you know, gruff kind of voice. Um. But yeah, and so he kind of, we since then, everything's amazing, but he has had this conversation. I was like, I couldn't do what you're doing now. There's so much instability and insecurity. Like, how do you know what you're going to be doing tomorrow? And I looked at him and I'm like, you were 30 years old when you up and left. A, well, we were uh, from Poland, so post-communist country. Yep. Uh, you left the country with your wife and your six-year-old daughter. You had no money. You didn't know English. You came to live in Calgary where you had no family and you figured it out. Yep. And you're telling me that becoming an artist is so difficult? I'm fairly certain he had it a thousand times more difficult than I did and didn't complain about it once. So what right do I have to complain about my my thing, my passion and my passion project and turning it into a career. Mm. I have the st- stability of my family. I have the stability of my husband. I have my own home that he has, I pay a mortgage on, but still I have so many beautiful resources, whereas he had absolutely nothing and he made it work just fine. Mm. So it was kind of funny when he said he couldn't do it because I'm like, you have done it. It goes back to that narrative of the cogs and the wheels and the machine. It's not just that uh, there's this thing where we're forced to do everything, but it also becomes this um, framework in which people idealize everything. And so um, what's the only purpose of having a machine? It's the end result. And what is the end result that's implied is, um, you know, an easy retirement where you go sailing, whatever the picture is for the individual baby boomer. But um, they were indoctrinated into believing. And, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, shit, if I'm 70 and uh, 
I don't have to go to a, a nine to five day job and I can just uh, hang out on a beach or do like fun projects, start painting, carpentry, whatever people do. I mean, that's amazing. Amazing. Uh, but using that as a fundamental um, direction, uh, sorry, a fundamental sort of um, aim to plan your whole life has become uh, depressing. <laughs> yeah, it has. Yeah. It's a little bit of a herd of sheep. Yeah in the square box and anything outside of that square box is not successful. So is it around here that you planned your business? Did you sell your first piece first? I mean, when, what is this moment where it becomes a career? I don't know if there was a moment where I felt it was a career. Uh, I, so I had that conversation back in September of 2016 with my family that I'm going to try this out for a year. Uh, within the same month, I had an art coach for six weeks because I didn't know anything about art. So I figured it would be nice to have an extra person in my corner where I, who I could ask questions. And uh, I sold my first few pieces that same month, which was amazing. And the so, momentum kind of just kept on growing. Well, um, yeah, maybe just quickly, what, what is an art coach and how did you sell your pieces? <laughs> So this is super bizarre, and it's something that I never believed in until it kind of started happening. In my corporate life, in my eight years, never once has this kind of moment of magic ever happened. Um, the second that I started on this art journey, magic kind of keeps on entering my life. The right thing at the right time, with the right energy, with the right whatever. And it's super specific to the point where it really freaks me out. So the second I started thinking about art seriously, there was an Instagram post about an artist who I follow on Instagram, Lynette Melnick, very beautiful work. Uh, and she said, and she, her post was normally all art, but she said that she was willing to give business coaching slash art coaching to, to people. So I had saved that post and I had then reached out to her um, and we had a coffee and it was amazing. And that's when I decided, I know that I haven't worked for nine months. I know that I don't have any funds left at all whatsoever. And I don't have the money to pay for her, but I'm going to do it anyway. Amazing. So that day when I emailed her back and said, yes, sign me up is the same day that in the evening, my friend who, uh, we worked in corporate together for eight years, we always buy a lottery ticket together, uh, once a week, she kept on going with a tradition, even though I wasn't in, in the office anymore. She called me up that same evening and said, hey, Megda, we won a little bit. I'm like, okay, that's great. We haven't won anything in three years that we've been doing this, but that's fine. How much did we win? She's like, 4,000. So, so 2,000 for you and 2,000 for me. And I'm like, that just pays for my art coach and my first round of art supplies. Holy smokes. And it happened within 24 hours. So that kind of what's happened. And ever since then, when I felt like I needed something, it was provided. It doesn't mean that I wait around until it happens. It means that I work. And when the universe provides, it decides to provide, it provides. I like that. I, I'm, so, I mean, I suppose I should ask you about, um, yeah, your spirituality and, and this idea of um, being open. But, you know, I love is that you underline that in that it's not openness that we lie down and we wait for the universe to uh, give us a, a Thai massage. It's, uh, <laughs> it's in the act of doing and being active that we become, I think, 
more open to the opportunities that are around us. Um, if you don't act first, then um, you don't you don't see anything. It won't manifest. Yeah. I one hundred percent completely agree because when I was still after I had quit my job, I started doing yoga and I started meditating and I started asking the universe, like, what the heck am I supposed to do with my life? I don't want to offer accounting services to small businesses, but I really want to be part of the small business community. I really like all these people. What do I do? The answer is like, there is no answer. Absolutely no answer. I did that for six months at this. And then at the same time, I started painting, not knowing that that was my sign. Yeah. The universe tends to tap you on the shoulder. And it taps you on the shoulder and you ignore it. It taps you on the shoulder again. You ignore it. All of a sudden, it stops tapping you on the shoulder. And I didn't have those taps on the shoulder for the entire time that I was in the corporate world because I just wasn't listening. The second I started listening is when things constantly just take me aback by how amazing everything is. But yes, I work. I work the entire time and I allow things to happen. So I used to have also a lot of goals, business goals. I have to create a certain amount, even with my art, there's a certain amount that I want to create. There's goals and everything like that. I went to Thailand recently for a month. And one of the main things, essentially what they were, what I learned was a lot of spirituality, uh, gained a lot of forethought. um, And it kind of said, be present. Uh, control is an illusion and it's something that I brought back with me so it's not necessarily like if I don't paint x amount then I'm not deemed successful if I don't do this then I haven't progressed Uh, it's about staying open to the possibility that might arise and that's all I'm doing now is I paint because I enjoy it I go to networking events because I enjoy the people not because I'm trying to get a connection it's more of a, I want to build a community and I want to be part of that. Um, and this kind of just being calm and enjoying and being present in the moment and things will start to happen. I wonder, you know, to, to twist philosophically as usual, but, um, you know, I was talking to Jacko, who's the manager uh, at Filnsebis, and um, his real life is he's a mountaineer, essentially. He climbs insane peaks. Uh, and not to outdo the story, because I really hope to have him on here, but he, I think he's almost died three times this year. It's crazy. But we were just chatting this morning, too. Uh, I talk a lot, apparently, uh, not just on a podcast. But he uh, was talking about how rewarding it is to obviously climb mountains, but in the act of climbing and being out for three days in a tent with, you know, two to four dudes, like, you know, hunted by bears. And I mean, it's shit. It's hard. It's a grind. It's work. It's only in the reflection of what he gains out of it that there's an enlightenment. This is an idea that this is worthy. And I wonder, you know, uh, casting this sort of out, um, outwards in a philosophical sense that if there isn't a problem in our study right now that we mix up the idea of enlightenment, happiness, um, with the idea of consumption and and sort of like tangible pleasure. And so, um, you know, the big box corporate life that we talked about earlier, um, what they're positing is, yeah, like you can have this many square feet in your house. And, you know, if you want to have this type of car with this many horsepower and you want to wear these kind of jewelry, then those are considered, you know, like the 
the the health plan, your dentist will you know get only ten bucks from you, whatever they're pitching, um, it becomes this consumable. But when you are talking about your approach to art, et cetera, um, that I, or even the spiritual journey into Thailand, um, enlightenment becomes something else. This this presentness that the Buddhists and other spiritual sort of uh, approaches talk about, I think it's something else. I I don't know what it is, but I feel connected to it too. Um, and like you, the more I'm open to, I mean, shit, I'm sitting here at Media Lab YYC recording a podcast yeah. for a magazine I built. Uh, I don't read magazines. I don't listen to podcasts. I don't know what I'm doing. And yet here we are, I think, because the universe is telling me that I need to be here to get your story out, to get Zaire's story out, Alvin's, and whomever I meet next, Kyle, Kyle's story will be next probably, Um, (laughs) you know, uh, in front of people. So people meet people like you and uh, hopefully be inspired by. I agree. 100%. Um, Yeah. So uh, do you think there's a, is there a spiritual meaning behind your work and your practice? So yes, there's a, I have a certain way that I start off each painting. Um, I sage my space. I, I diffuse essential oils. There's a meditation that I do beforehand. And usually when I paint, everything kind of falls to the side. I don't know what time it is. I don't know when I start or finish. Um, At the end, I probably don't even know what my painting looks like. I just kind of walk away uh, until I view it the next day. But my hope with all my artwork is that I understand that most people that buy it have busy lives. And most of us are on this kind of autopilot. I hope that my art is in a space where as you have your busy life, you can see it and stop and take a breath and kind of just in that breath be present and realize what is in fact important. And that's all that I request out of everybody. And I, I mean, my art is in the most amazing, wonderful family homes um, when I couldn't be happier, uh, but I know that they're busy homes. So I hope that the serenity and the kind of calm that I try to pull into my artwork and the energy that I try to pull into my art is something that they can reflect upon, even if it's just a moment, just a breath. Thank you for that. And thank you for sitting with us. Um, We are going to talk, I suppose, about what you're doing next. So um, I think when we spoke last, you have reduced the number of markets you go to. So um, let's talk quickly about the show we're building, um, which I think we're confirming. uh, so we partnered with Guild Hall Home in Inglewood. Um, Carrie's a great owner. I don't have their address actually on me, but we'll post it on the social media or maybe I'll record something after. Uh, but uh, when I post that, actually now this is, fits in right with your character, Magda, you uh, DM'd me the exact same day, maybe within an hour, um, that I had this new space, which I love. Uh, and I told you, and this is not a lie, actually, when Carrie and I were meeting uh, to build that space, we talked about your work. <laughs> Uh, so we want to talk about the universe working. Um, it's uh, it's incredible. Um, but uh, we are building. What day are we seeing? Do you remember? October fifth. It will be the kind of grand reception, and my artwork will be at Guild Hall between October second to November nineteenth. So what we'll do is uh, we'll have it up. It'll be on his wall. He has a beautiful store with beautiful. this high end Scandinavian everything. Uh, and uh, I think your work's going to look incredible there. It's a beautiful space. I'm super excited. 
Everything uh, there, of course, will be uh, salable. Um, so come out on the Friday. The Friday is going to be great. Uh, I know it's the weekend of Thanksgiving, but Magda's going to be there. We're going to figure out some kind of refreshment, fun party environment. And it's going to be a great night. Uh, thank you so much, um, not only for being here, for working with me in general. Um, you're very a pleasant lady to have acquainted myself with. <laughs> Thanks, David. It was my pleasure. Uh, and hopefully we can work together in the future to build uh, whatever the next project uh, is. Have you maybe back on the podcast at some point? Uh, talk about my magazine. Lots yes, of stuff. Yeah. please. Is there anything else that you want to talk about as far as future projects or things that people might want to know that um, you're up to? Future projects. Uh, I have three retail stores that currently have my art, which is in Project A in Canmore, Fernway in the Banff Springs Hotel, and Gypsy Mary's, which is located in Bread Creek. Um, I'm, I'll also do a couple of Christmas markets uh, in December. So that's all up on my website. So Magda's work is Modern Emulsions. On Instagram, it's at Modern Emulsions, M-O-D-E-R-N-E-M-U-L-S-I-O-N-S. Right? right? Yes, fabulous. Um, we've decided to keep... Uh, my friend Morgan's music on the setup. So that's Mallory Music, uh, M-E-L-L-O-R-I-M-U-S-I-C. Uh, thank you again, Media Lab. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Magda. Thank you, everybody. And uh, hope thank you, you all David. Have, have, have a great day.